0: Want to make an impact in your community and around the world in a fun and relatively easy way? Join Dressember in the fight against human trafficking. Thousands of advocates worldwide participate in a quirky style challenge every year by wearing a dress or a tie for 31 days in December to fundraise for international anti-trafficking efforts. Use the Style Challenge as a way to start conversations with your community about human trafficking and what we can do to end it. We know fundraising can be intimidating, so we have all the resources you need to hit the ground running, and we're with you every step of the way. Become an advocate today at dressemberorg fundraise. Hi, and welcome back to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a Dressimber podcast. I'm your host, Blythe Hill, and my co-host is Steph Schindler. In the series, we're talking with 11 survivors of human trafficking and exploitation to find out what they wish the allies who fight for them knew about these issues. We're thrilled to share our conversation with today's guest, Swamirs Pirino Guzman. Swamirs is the head of programs at the Survivor Alliance and a subject matter expert on trauma informed care, mental health, and behavioral psychology. Swamirs uses his energy and expertise to create equitable and nuanced services for people who are disabled or otherwise marginalized or vulnerable. His ideas about equitable services invite us to shift the ways we think about factors that contribute to an individual's vulnerability to human trafficking. Join us as we discuss what fair and quality care for people with compounding vulnerabilities could look like. We know you'll walk away with at least a few nuggets of wisdom. Well, Swamiers, we're so excited to be here with you. Thank you again for agreeing to hop on the podcast with us and have um, hopefully a really insightful conversation.
1: Thank you. I'm very honored, very happy to be here with you and talking about human trafficking.
0: Cool. Us too. Um, well, starting with um, the topic of of disabilities in in trafficking, I know you mentioned you did not have disabilities at the time of your trafficking that 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 came later in your life Um, but I'm still curious if you can share a bit about how someone with disabilities might be more vulnerable to trafficking because it's not something we've really talked about on the podcast and I think a lot of our listeners um, maybe haven't thought about that aspect of vulnerability.
1: That is a great way for us to start a conversation, to really look at one particular issue and and expand from there. People with disabilities have all all sorts of conditions, perhaps, that puts them at higher risk of human trafficking. Uh, but before we go into that, I would like to kind of just start with the context of trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed sure. care—it's—it's a—it's a context. It's the framework, perhaps, it's the baseline to which we see how the experiences of people uh, impacts them or change them. Um, you know, there is a context called the neurobiology of trauma and the impact of the brain. That is to say that everything that uh, that impacts. Us that they change us, every trauma event, every experience kind of changes something in our brains and, and it, it changes the way that I talk, the way that I see you, the way that I engage with you, the way that I have relationships. And that also, when it comes to people with disabilities, sets them up at a very high particular level. Um, a dis- disproportionately high level of vulnerability to human trafficking. Let's talk about people with disabilities, let's say, physical, uh, mobile disabilities, of somebody who is in a wheelchair. Uh, there is, uh, as an adult and as a parent, for example, I am very uh, prone to be anxious and nervous about how I'm going to provide for my family, whether if I'm going to experience, uh, continue to experience harassment on my work because I am a person with disabilities in a leadership position, uh, and I don't know whether if my disability will in the future impact me the way that I work or the way that I engage myself. So that particular kind of vulnerability factor of like of the anxiety producing, well, what's going to happen next, whether my disability is going to change me, that, for example, can be just one minimalistic way of looking at how vulnerability is created. It's created by a condition, by a circumstance, and it grows from there until it becomes a challenge and then ultimately puts somebody at a bit higher risk but then you have other situations to which people may have what's called comorbidities or are issues that are co-occurring. Uh, for example, a person with a a physical disability may also have uh, a developmental disability uh, or challenges that perhaps can uh, can impact the way that they engage with people. Um, you know, we have seen these where uh, particularly cognitively, uh, there are some people with uh, dis- with uh, developmental disabilities, for example, that cognitively, they cannot connect when they're being hurt or when they're being harmed. Um, so that inability to perhaps process uh, the hurt or harm, uh, it, it really puts people at that higher risk of really mm. not identifying they're being hurt when they're being hurt, uh, but they're also uh, the inability to really put words into uh, sometimes like literal words, not being able to uh, having another or co-occurring that I may not be able to communicate or using words, I may be able to communicate using sign language, braille or other forms. Uh, but then, you know, there, that is a particular vulnerability that comes which is being disabled. Um, you know, we have seen large groups of people in, that, in the Midwest, for example, there are particular people with uh, hearing uh, hearing challenges. They are within the, uh, the hearing community. Um, and these big group of people were being forced uh, to work against their will in, in, in a facility. Uh, they were not able to hear, they were not able to leave, they were not, you know, they were recruited as part because they were uh, uh, disabled or had these disability and were offered a good employment opportunity. They ultimately end up being uh, um, a, a human trafficking experience. So let's say well, disabilities are are just are the vulnerability are the vulnerabilities to human trafficking on top of that you may you have issues such as like race uh, you may have uh, whether somebody is of color they may have a higher race or uh, higher vulnerability to human trafficking plus their disability sport the co occurring plus physical uh, challenges plus poverty plus aces plus everything else it really puts people at, at the very, for a lack of better word out of like a silver plate to be exploited. And that Mm. is unfortunately because we have created the system that is oppressive yeah. in nature, uh, whether if we like to hear that or not. Uh, but you know, where people with disabilities do not have a space in society or are seen seen differently. Um, you know, recently I learned something very important about my disability that has converted my whole thinking: It's that my disability is not my physical limitation. It's not the fact that I use a wheelchair or that I cannot go upstairs. It's how people see me. My disability mm-hmm. is not being able to go into that restaurant that we really like after being going into the inter, uh, into into being disabled, for example. And that is a, uh, well, that may be a small thing to me, that restaurant may mean a lot, you know, so those things that are really, as at, at, at a, at a community, uh, you know, I identify in my neighborhood, there are 13 sidewalks that I cannot use out of the 15 sidewalks there are in my wow. neighborhood. And so that I need to use the streets with am more danger, perhaps, of being a, in an accident. So that is all that convoluted answer to say disabilities is an spectrum. It's an a spectrum to which really puts people at higher risk of trafficking and often it's that one thing that makes them vulnerable. Like we saw them in Minnesota with, with 42 people, hard, uh, hard-hearing people who were literally recruited out of uh, job centers because they were turned away because they were not given a job. Uh, because they were they were hard of hearing. So mm. I want to I, I want to ask talk about this about this in a larger context that uh, the, there is a part of us, but there's also much more that makes us vulnerable, not only in the to human trafficking but in our communities,
0: yeah, that's i I think that's a really powerful. I mean, what you said about the main, I, I'm gonna botch how you said it when I paraphrase it, but the main disadvantage being not the disability itself, but how then people perceive you. And often like when I think of traffickers, I don't think of like particularly brave or clever individuals. I just think of like opportunists who are willing to exploit the vulnerabilities of people. So seeing seeing that vulnerability like to your the example that you mentioned, that group that was hard of hearing, like seeing seeing And exploiting that weakness, like, okay, these these people are held back in this way. And so we can we can draw on that. We can exploit that and um, do a sort of a bait and switch, I imagine, for a job opportunity. Um, that turned out to be trafficking. Yeah, is exactly. I mean? And I
1: will say yeah. that that is the same thing why people of color are higher risk of, of being exploited, is because most often, and like, let's give the example of Washington. I'm based out of Seattle, Washington. Uh, in our community, 95% of victims of trafficking, especially sex trafficking, this is the most easily accessible, da- accessible data, are Black. Girls in Washington in Seattle, Washington, ninety-five percent of victims of sex trafficking are black girls. Overwhelmingly, one hundred percent of people who have been whether cut by sex or whether have been cut uh, been arrested for charges of. of, of, of um, uh, exploiting a minor, trafficking—all of that—are disproportionately white, and that is because again, mm-hmm. we see that vulnerability, we use that vulnerability, we exploit that vulnerability, and just like we see color as a vulnerability, uh, we need to see disabilities and co-occurring challenges as a as a vulnerability.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of this. It's really important to understand that there are so many co-occurring vulnerabilities that make human trafficking an intersectional issue. Um, we're we're talking about being susceptible to human trafficking, but I also want to talk about um, the other side, the aftercare services. When folks have um, been provided an exit pathway or uh, out of a traffic trafficking situation, we don't always see, that those aftercare services are equitable and that they are inclusive of folks with disabilities or they are inclusive of men and boys or if they are not inclusive of immigrants. So I'd love to get your perspective on that.
1: Absolutely, and I love this question because aftercare, social services, case management, however you wanna call it in your community are 100% the main way that we can interact and support survivors of trafficking out of their trafficking situation. And at the same time, the same responsibility comes with a duty for us to be mindful, careful, intentional, and strategic on how we provide services to the people and understanding who is is being exploited in our communities. Uh, before kind of go into, into that question, I want to expand in, in a part of earlier, talking about trauma-informed care. Trauma, uh, there is a new context in traumatology that is exciting talking about uh, developmentally appropriate trauma-informed care. We all know, and we have talked about trauma-informed care as the baseline for services, but developmentally appropriate trauma-informed care is the context to which we are basing how we provide trauma-informed services to somebody based on where they are developmentally. And that is not only to empathize to their age, but also to their disability, to their mental health well-being, and to where they are in life. What that example give us, or perhaps what, what I think what's a great and awesome tool about um, oh, oh, of these new contexts of developmentally appropriate trauma-informed care is that makes us take, take a step back and think about people and break apart all of the different challenges, their experiences, their experience for example in my case I, I wasn't disabled when i when i experienced my, my trafficking situation i am from honduras i was born and raised in honduras i was uh, kidnapped from my home country I brought to seattle california where for six months i was exploited um for a very long time i didn't know how to process or why I, this had happened to me. And I put many excuses, but the reality is that it was because of who I was, because of the color of my skin on how I stood out in my community, because I looked different. And I all of that that made me who I was, put me at literally in the hands of people who wanted to exploit that me standing out, me being vulnerable and standing out in a situation. When we're thinking about equity and equitable uh, or equality, we, we get confused. And why we think, what is equity and what is equality? And the reality is that equality, um, it's getting everybody at the same level. I always put this funny example, of how this little city and, uh, and a town in Germany tried to uh, got everybody bicycles in their, in, in their town. Everybody in their town, bicycles, 246 people in that town, however, were people with disabilities. So when they changed all of the streets from not having uh, actual buses and they took back most of the streets and they basically created a transportation desert for people with disabilities in that community. So then everybody got a bicycle so they can enjoy that community. Now that everybody, all of the streets have become bike lanes. However, there was 246 members of that community who came out and like, well, what about us? We wanna do that, but how do we do this? And the reality is that we cannot use a bicycle, so we need a different bicycle that we can pedal with our hands. So equality, it's really, how do we put people at the same place as somebody else? I always say that in order, we must ensure equality for everybody. We must ensure equity before we can all enjoy equality. Everybody must be made whole and be fair before we can all just truly be, be um uh, a- equal and be in the same place. And that me as a person with disabilities, a person with mobile disabilities, that makes me question like those tw- those um sidewalks, certain sidewalks in my in my streets that I cannot use. Uh, that little example, however, uh, you know, it's when it comes to um making uh, services is that we are not necessarily thinking we we when we set up services we are we're setting up services to appetite to the funder to the standards of care we're not setting up services to meet the needs of this community or the population or understanding how that the specifics or how to set up perhaps a trauma-informed shelter for victims of sex trafficking in the us but then we have then chosen to come into into the anti-trafficking service, uh, to anti-trafficking world. We grab onto sex trafficking of girls, uh, of females, and then we go into saying who is more vulnerable in our community: are little girls? And then, which we, we go to human. If you go, if you Google human trafficking on Google, you're going to see all like just white girls with blue eyes, uh, chuckled and handcuffs. And I have never seen. Uh, I have seen. Countless of trafficking victims, but I never seen somebody in handcuffs or shackles or tied up. And I'm, you know, I'm sure it happens because we have seen a lot of situations and of trafficking. But that is not the norm. And what happens is that we create uh, a biased idea of what a trafficking victim is. So when I come into, when I in 2004, when the police brought down that door for after six months in captivity, uh, like they didn't know what to do with me. There was this man, this boy who we know, was tall, who spoke no English, who had no family here, who had nothing else, who was thinking of suicide, who was thinking of all of these things. And what are we going to do with them? And to be fair, the reality is that for, four, you know, that had only been four years since the passing of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2004 when I was a victim of trafficking. So there wasn't much to hold on to, yet Overwhelmingly to today, there's probably two to three shelters in this country that specialized in boys and men. 99% <laughs> of shelters in this country specialize on, on, on female, on, on housing on sheltering female-identifying people and often disregarding even uh, uh, often just cisgender female-identifying people, which creates a whole different uh, challenge for LGBTQ people, especially transgender people. And then uh, men and boys are just left out. But then we are... And then when we think of an immigrant, uh, when we think of labor trafficking, now there's been talked more. Mm. We go to the immigrant part, the immigration part. We always think it's a foreign a uh, foreigner being exploited in our community. And because there's that kind of tension of an immigrant to a foreigner, they're not us. So, they're, you know, we don't care. There's still, there's a lot extra barriers to break through. Um, when you are an immigrant, a boy, an assistant that was created for cisgender female-identifying U.S. citizens uh, that, you know, spoke English and were able to benefit greatly from the program, you know, it, it became really difficult. I was placed in a foster care system where I spoke no English, I had nobody, um, and wasn't able wow. to benefit from services because that equity of making me whole in that program so I can benefit in the same way that all of the other uh, female identifying people in that program benefit from. I wasn't able to do that. Uh, But now I work in creating that space survivors of trafficking, especially uh, men and boys, um, while leveraging and really celebrating the great work that has been done by female identifying survivors in this country, they have set up amazing housing programs uh, across the country and allowing us to learn from them and be able to yeah. put those those, uh, those learnings into practices.
0: Do you know that Fairtrade LA led the campaign that officially made Los Angeles the largest fair trade city in North America and the fourth largest fair trade city in the world? Fairtrade LA is a nonprofit on a mission to educate and inspire consumers to embrace fair trade products so that global farmers and artisans have the opportunity to earn a fair and sustainable living. We believe fair trade is one of the solutions to ending labor trafficking around the world. The next time you're out shopping, just pick up one fair trade item to buy, like coffee, chocolate, or bananas, and make a difference. To learn more, subscribe to Fair Talks podcast, where they educate everyday people for extraordinary. Yeah, there there was so much there. Like I, I'm struggling to pick how to respond because there's like ten different different ways I could go. Um, I love what you said, the example of equality versus equity. I think of um, it's a really like simplistic visual, but I think of that like little cartoon of people trying to look over a fence and they're different heights. And so equality would give them all the same height stool. And so I think two out of the three still can't see over it, but equity is giving them a different size stool that's going to allow them the same viewpoint over the fence but I I hadn't heard about that story of the town in Germany and with the bikes and it's like such a powerful example of what um what I think equality does is it kind of misses it misses what the what the end goal actually is in favor of like, well, no, we're going to give everyone the same thing. It's going to be this great like gift without thinking like, well, if the end goal is to allow people, all people to enjoy these streets and have the same level of access, then you kind of need to start with the goal in mind and work backwards in terms of how do we make sure that that's actually going to happen for, for all of our people. So thank you for sharing that, that story. And then, and then, um, A lot of what you talked about with um, even, like, the idea of the trafficking, like, the central narrative of trafficking being directed towards, like, young white girls, I think that's spot on. I think that, like, ends up being in all the imagery and is, unfortunately, like, maybe the most mainstream, um, like, empathy trigger, for people or something. And so that's why it gets it gets hit on so much is just for fundraising. But um I think it it not only leaves a lot of people out of valuable services and um connects so much to that equity conversation, but it also really feeds into then the sensationalism that we've seen. So speaking specifically about sensationalism in the trafficking and anti-trafficking space how have you seen it be harmful specifically to survivors?
1: I'm glad that you brought up the topic of centralization and the anti-trafficking sector because it has been on my mouth for years because I have always not only did I not see myself in that centralized na- uh, uh, narrative. I didn't see myself in the color of the skin. I didn't see myself in that. I, I didn't see myself to be potentially a victim of trafficking because I didn't exist in that narrative. So the current narrative deletes the experiences of, of you know, even, even, even in the anti-trafficking sector, the deletes the experiences of people with disabilities, people of color, men and boys, uh, mm. uh, you know, are, are, not part of that conversation. Uh, Immigrants are often uh, disenfranchised of that conversation because uh, they're often not able to participate Perhaps Im- as as immensely or uh, as as others would, because they're not documented. For example, a lot of immigrants who are being survivors of trafficking in this country, who have a lot to contribute to the anti-trafficking sector and conversations that happen in D.C., San Francisco, New York, they're not able to travel and be there present. They're not able to be engaged. Their time is not able to be compensated because they're not. We can't write them a check. That is creating that father that uh, we are suppressing that narrative of people uh, that we, from particular uh, ch- uh, from particular communities because we seek the essentialization of the narrative. We continue to it uh, because, like you said, it, be, it brings money. And I I dislike to use this phrase, but often, non- sex sells, uh, and often that gets people into the door. And uh, in order for us. To tackle centralization, we have to talk about trauma porn. We have to talk about salacious details. We have to talk about, like, what are, why are people asking? Mm. Like what I always tell people, like, you don't, don't ask about trafficking unless you need to know. Don't ask about their experience unless you need to know. Don't ask about that specific how, when did it hurt. If you don't need to know, you don't need to know that, right? That is seeking that trauma porn, the centralization of it, because you want to, because you're looking for that that will match that narrative. So it's it's challenging. Three years ago, I was in court. I was accompanying a survivor of trafficking here in the and uh, with the uh, in federal court who was uh, testifying against the trafficker. Before uh, my 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 client could testify. Um, the defenders the defense attorney stood up and says your honor we move to dismiss and he says what do you mean like we're almost done with this like you can move to dismiss now and I said well your honor we have come to a, to a decision that this is not human trafficking the defense attorney stood up and and pulled out an article where basically said that where president trump has said that human trafficking is only what happens at the border where people are coming uh, handcuffed with tape in their mouth in the back of the truck and the back of the trunk of the car uh, and he argued that the victim in front of the court hadn't been taped hadn't been hadn't been chained hadn't been uh, hadn't been in the back of the truck and the trunk or nothing like that so therefore there wouldn't be a victim uh, she wasn't a victim of trafficking um, and that is what happens when we give a false information to our community that false information is used then to oppress people of uh, of people who have experienced trafficking, that is the real effect of a sensualization. Sensualization mm. is actually used to oppress victims what actually people victims of trafficking are.
2: Wow, It's really horrible to see how harmful sensualization is. yeah, and that that can really come from people being so misinformed. And I really want to bring it back to something you said earlier about how we need to stop asking survivors to tell their explicit stories of trafficking when it is not necessary only to educate folks, to raise fundraising dollars, um, for just like for the everyday person to get a larger understanding of human trafficking. It is really unnecessary. To do that. And there is so much more that survivors can offer to the anti-trafficking movement. And when we listen to survivors and what they have to teach us from their lived experiences, we can start to avoid these horrible instances of what can happen when people are, you know, aggressively using misinformation to their advantage. So um, I'm hoping you can share with us how the anti-trafficking sector can be more survivor-led and move past, you know, approaching survivors uh, as exclusively storytellers?
1: Wow. Really good question. And I think it really starts with us doing a a deep dive into, number one, acknowledging that trafficking is an institution within our communities that is happening, that is happening to men, boys girls, uh, adults, female, LGBTQ people, transgender women, transgender men. Uh, it, it's happening to people in wheelchairs, to people who cannot talk, to people who cannot see, who people who cannot, who cannot, who cannot uh, hear. Um, and the reality is that we, we need to do that, um, that bias work and, re- and, and realize that we cannot continue to expect Marginalized and oppressed people to continue to educate us. In this case, we cannot continue to expect trafficking survivors that after twenty years of engaging in the anti-trafficking sector, that basically saying the same things, advocating for same things, and taking one step and take, uh, taking one step forward and taking ten back. Uh, you know um, that. It, it it makes it it's it's as frustrating as sometimes and debilitating, but uh, in other times you just when you take that step forward, we take it and we take it running before we have to take the step back because at least we're planting seeds in those moments um it's you know this we can really answer this question by one simple answer listen to survivors, talk to survivors, ask survivors like if like Trauma-informed care, uh, uh, developmental appropriate trauma-informed care teaches us very, very importantly to ask people. Like, just ask people. Get, get them, get them at their level. Let them know you see them, you hear them, and you want to know. Like, the power of wanting to know is so beautiful. And like in, in trauma-informed care, says, ask people, what do you need? When was the last time you asked that to your son? your daughter uh to your family member to your husband to your son to anybody what do you need just out of anywhere whether if they are in a frustrated moment whether if they are in a moment of learning whether if they are in a moment of uncomfortable ask them what do you need to either to be comfortable to stay in the space to sit with you to engage with you it's really engaged, really. I think that's all the survivors have asked for many, many years. Um, and then we continue to, um, you know, <laughs> I didn't let anybody know. During 10 years of engaging in the anti-trafficking sector, I did not let anybody know that during those 10 years, I was going to school full-time, I was working a, a, a full-time, I was working full-time while doing these all uh, advocacy activities because I wanted to be there. I graduated and then I told everybody because the reality is that like I wanted to, everybody uh, I wanted to celebrate this for myself. Unfortunately, I think that at first the the movement um, was at a moment where they wanted the story of a man, of a boy that have experienced trafficking. And I, out of that need to change the system, I may have given a little too much of myself that it took a while to reclaim that title back. I was given the title of a victim, of a survivor, but then what about my other titles? I have two, three more after that. You know, I'm a, I'm, I have two masters, two bachelors. I have I I'm am I'm a licensed behavioral psychologist. I have all of these things. But before that, it came a victimization. We have always said we are victim center. And I ask you not to be victim center, to be person center. Why? Because person first, then what happened to them? If I can leave you with nothing, to your listeners and to living in here, it's that person first and then what happened to them. Put me first and then what happened to me, the shame becomes associated with it. It's secondary. If you put me first, what happens next is really secondary because I'm a human. You will connect with me at that level. But if you put first that victim, you will always have that level i always wanted to see that person as their and their in their worst and broken state. That is the danger of us now moving to being a survivor-led movement and past a survivors being exclusively storytellers, where we are engaged in the movements working alongside you and we and, and being there and present and guiding. You know, we like we see the, the domestic violence movements, we see the Black Black Lives Matter movement, they're all led by people that have been victimized, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement is led by people, Black people who have been victimized by oppressive symptom, uh, systems. Whether it, if the domestic violence movement is led by amazing, courageous people who have worked against every act to, to work and pass every legislation to make sure that there's protection for themselves and for others who may be victimized at home or any, any other, other interaction. That's where we want to see the sector. We want to drive the sector. And it's not out of the desire of like driving the narrative, but it's the desire of correcting the narrative and upskilling the narrative. We need to upskill the narrative. You know, one thing that I, that I, that I realized in eight years of school, you know, I told you I went to school and I did not tell anybody. In eight years of school, I realized <laughs> three things. And it's funny to me because it costs so much money to go to university to realize three things. Number one is the trauma does not make you. It does not break you. Trauma does not need to change you. Trauma, it's what happened to you does not take who you are going to be. That was the first important thing that I learned. Number two, I went to, I studied psychology, by the way, so I wanted to understand the brain. Number two, I understand the way that we provide services, the way that we provide behavioral health services, mental health services to anybody in this country is old, is outdated. We need to upskill ourselves. We need to upskill ourselves, and even the way that I provide services to people is not the same way I provided services to, uh, to services to, to people last year, because we we must realize that the way that I experienced trafficking in two thousand and four is not the same way people experiencing trafficking today. The same way that I that I needed services in two thousand and four is not the same way people need services today. We need to upskill ourselves and innovate and adapt to where we are today. And that's why <laughs> this 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 sector has really has a lot of work to done. One thing that we need to remove is the hyper specialization of survivors, and this is a challenge to across all sectors. Whether it's domestic abuse, children of war, for example, are high like children in, in military for uh, children who have been exposed to armed forces and and having to fight for and, and, and conflict are unfortunately so courageous but at the same time being taken so much advantage of because they're being so hyper specialized that they are not able to move forward out of these contexts of yeah. who, what happened wow. today and why you know their cultural situation and the civil war and whatever the conditions but there's not the internal work like th- that happens when you remove that title that experience and allow people to just heal Um, hyper-specialization of survivors has been a big challenge where I, it took me a very long time to get that label of a victim, a survivor out of me and allow people and and for people to start seeing me as that professional that I was because they hyper-specialized me to be a survivor so much so that there was no space for me other than if I wanted to be a survivor in the space.
0: Yeah, and I think that will be a pretty novel concept for a lot of our listeners, is the idea of hyper-specialization of survivors, that you're kind of put in this box of, you know, you are a victim or survivor, and so that is what you're called on to be, professionally and otherwise, and so the idea that, well, all human beings are more complex and show up in in a number of different ways, and... Not Most people don't want to be defined by any one thing that they've been through, and yet we do that to survivors all the time. Um, I appreciate you showing up in so many other ways, and even in this conversation with the expertise that you're able to offer.
2: I, I love your charge to people that we need to be more person-centered. That allows space for the all-important question, what do you need? individually, what do you need? Not you, the victim, I assume you need these services. So here they are on a plate, I hope they work out. Or you, the survivor, I imagine you wanna share your story and that is a way for you to be involved in the sector. So here is only one way to participate as opposed to saying, hi, person, what do you need? How would you like to help lead this movement? How What services do you need? Um, in what ways do you enjoy consulting? What professional experience do you have? What vocational training are you interested in? Um, instead of, like Blythe said, just identifying people by this very traumatic experience. So I just really appreciate that invitation um, for us to shift our mindsets.
1: I'm glad I can leave you. I can leave you all with that. I did a good job.
0: You did. (laughs) You did. And you're not off the hook yet because our, our closer question that we ask all of our guests, I have, I have a suspicion that I might know what direction you're going to take this, but feel free to take it in a totally new direction. Um, But we've been asking all of our guests, if there's one thing, like what, what is the one thing you wish people knew about human trafficking?
1: The one thing I, I wish people knew about human trafficking is that it happens to me. It happens to boys. It happens to men. It happens to LGBTQ people. It happens to all everybody else who you, who you don't know it happens to. The reality is that we have been... Either being forced to believe that human trafficking is a one-sided issue, whether if it's just a sex trafficking and neglecting labor trafficking, but the reality is that human trafficking is the spectrum. This really is. We need to see human trafficking uh, with a lighter lens, to just the uh, hyper, the hyper uh, focus into that morality issue of sex, and we, in you know, and that issue of sex, then exparse this whole movement of like trying to stop all sex so then because that will stop sex trafficking and but that leads into more convoluted questions about what is it that are we actually stopping are we actually stopping trafficking or are we going after a larger idea what human trafficking is that it's actually not um so i asked you i asked you the uh, your listeners for that grace as i made that comment because i think it's important for us to realize that i'm asking the movement to take a step back take a step back and analyze and go back and realize that, hey, like we reach and we want equality. But in order for us to reach equality, we need to reach equity before we can all enjoy the equality that we all see. Um, I want to leave your readers with one last thought. And that thought, is, uh, I want to recommend that you read the book, uh What Happened to You by uh, uh Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Perry. I am uh, uh, that book you know i read it uh and the book and uh, the actual paper book and i love that paper book but I have rediscovered the love of audio uh, uh, audio books uh and uh, i recommend to everybody to you know if you want to listen to that book uh it's a really great listen to, uh, and a really great interaction between o- uh, Oprah opera and dr perry uh, and it provides a lot of great examples about Kind of what happens to people that makes them who they are. You know, what is the neurodivergent? What you know, what do we need to know about neurodivergence divergence and how that impacts people? How does it make people awesome and makes them stand out, but also makes them vulnerable to a lot more challenges in our community? Um, so please uh, read that book. I have rediscovered a lot for for audiobooks, so I invite you to to listen to it.
0: I love that you mentioned that book. That was one of the, my favorite books that I read last year. And actually, I listened to it because who doesn't want to listen to Oprah's voice for eight hours or however long? But you're inspiring me to, to reread it or maybe pick up a physical copy. Thanks for that recommendation. Thank you.
1: It's really been an awesome uh, time to be here. Uh, I'm say say it, but I really like the way that you have been able to reflect in this conversation with me and, and summarize. It makes me feel that you have been engaged with me. So thank you. Um, and you listen with intention, not to give me a reply. So,
0: Swamir's, we're so grateful again for your time and mental energy um, that you that you agreed to be a guest on the podcast. We've loved this conversation, and I think there's so many so many nuggets that our community can pull away from it and and hopefully be challenged by and and encouraged by. So, thank you. Thank you for being here with us. I
1: love them. I challenge you all to really see human trafficking outside of the current narrative.
2: Thanks for listening to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a Dressember podcast. We are all needed in the fight against human trafficking. And Dressember is here to equip and empower you to advocate for the dignity of all people. We host a style challenge every December where people pledge to wear a dresser tie for 31 days. The style challenge provides a fun, impactful way for even the busiest person to engage in this important issue. And it's proven to be a powerful way to raise awareness and vital funding for anti-trafficking work. Since 2013, thousands of advocates have raised roughly $16 million to fight human trafficking from every angle around the world this year is the 10th anniversary of the dressember style challenge and we need your advocacy to help make our biggest impact to date you can join the dressember community in the fight against human trafficking at dressember.org fundraise or learn more at dressember.org slash how it works and remember it's bigger than a dress